58 years old. People ask me to go cross-country skiing. It's like an asshole. I go, okay. Seven degrees in New London, New Hampshire. Seven degrees. Seven. Five plus fucking two. Seven. The instructor shows up. Listen up! We're gonna go eight miles. I'm like... <laughs> she goes, what? I go, I never walked eight miles in my whole life total. Does that matter? There's like ten Olympic athletes in me. I'm gonna take off on my test. Thirty seconds. <laughs> my lungs are frozen. After a minute, I realized I made a big fucking mistake. Someone's going, look at how beautiful I'm going. Forty minutes later, can you believe really I made forty minutes? I'm going. <laughs> Somebody's going, look at how beautiful I'm going. Don't ever grow across country skiing. It's fucking stupid. Take a snowmobile. All right, there, there it is. You were listening to the comedy stylings of Frank Santarelli, uh, who was just here this past uh, Friday night at the Chicken Box at the uh, comedy show that uh, comedian Brian Glowacki put on. And uh, what, a, what a fun night of comedy. And uh, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, what that was and what that entails. And con- uh, just a cr- congratulations to Brian, who's continued to work on building a comedy scene out here on Nantucket, and uh, he did a great job. Uh, went over the chicken box. I think there was a total of four comedians he brought from Off Island over here, and uh, I just want to let him know that I appreciate the effort. And I think the crowd did a huge crowd there at the chicken box to support comedy. I mean, the guy, the dude's building a comedy scene, and what a risk it is, you know, bringing these guys from Off Island, getting these guys paid. And uh, putting yourself out there like that to try and do something that you believe in, that you're passionate about. And that's what it's all about. And I think that uh, everyone that went out to the chicken box uh, really enjoyed the night. And uh, it was something special, turning the chicken box into a comedy club. I mean, uh, you know, Gwacky's building a comedy scene on Nantucket. And he's doing it uh, one show at a time. And he's slowly building it. And I think, uh, can you imagine if... uh, you know, in 10 years, there's a comedy club on Nantucket. It's a destination for comedians, you know? But it takes that kind of effort, and it takes, uh, takes that kind of willpower and determination to put yourself out there. You know, he could bring these guys out there, and then what if it was a crappy show? They wouldn't want to come back. I'm not going to Nantucket again. That was a horrible show, but it wasn't. It was great, and uh, the, the comedians were funny, and so I just thought we'd uh, kick off episode 29 with it. Uh, my Friday night at the Chicken Box at the comedy show. Again, Brian, congratulations. And uh, you're doing a great thing for the island. And uh, I will continue to support it inside the whale. We'll certainly continue to support it. And uh, it's a great thing that you're doing for the island. And, and pe- more and more people are going to start getting hip to what you're doing. Because it's awesome. And we want to continue to support it. It's something very cool. And the island needs it. And you're doing a great job. So I can't say enough. And uh, it's a lot of fun. So hopefully, uh, 
that intro of Frank Santarelli, who was the headliner that night, uh, was hilarious. Continue to build it and grow it. Build the dreams. If you build it, it will come. All right, Nantucket, how you doing, guys? Here we are. I'm recording this on Sunday. It's an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous Sunday here on Nantucket. Probably 60. Spring uh, is here. It feels that way anyway. Uh, things are starting to crack out here, and the weather's been amazing. I can't say enough. Uh, hopefully things are going well for you guys. Uh, I want to get into switch gears a little bit and talk about today's episode. Um, today's episode is a particularly heavy episode. It's not something that's easy to talk about. Uh, it's it's something that uh, is private for a lot of people, but certainly everyone uh, has has had family members or knows someone that struggled with addiction and Nantucket has its own issues with addiction and I thought that uh, I had an opportunity to sit down with someone and I chose to keep the person anonymous uh, out of respect for him but um, uh, a recovering uh, drug addict um, whose story I think is 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 a fascinating story into the world of addiction and recovery. And it's a hard topic to talk about, and not many people will speak publicly about it, but this particular person was willing to sit down and talk, and I thought that, uh, you know, given the stuff that's been going on in Nantucket and the Cape and Islands and the heroin problem and the opiate addiction, I feel it was an important uh, an important topic. And, I, I you know, the podcast... Is, is a platform, and, and I'm hoping people can take away from uh, this person's story um, some information, because he has a lot of opinions about addiction and and certainly the, uh, the road to recovery. And like it or not, we're all affected by it, family members, friends. Uh, no one's impervious to it. It's something that uh, we're all going to experience. Hopefully, you don't have to experience it yourself, but maybe there's a family member who's struggling, um, and we need the support. And we need to talk about it and be truthful about it. So that was my decision to have this particular guest on the show because I felt like people might take away information from this conversation that could be helpful and, inf- and informative. And this is a guy that's, uh, you know, he's been in jail for, uh, for drug addiction and uh, he, he's in recovery now. Thank God. And he, he, he's a good friend and I'm really glad that he took the time because I think that's... Uh, it's an important topic, and it's a heavy topic. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's a, it, it was a pretty heavy conversation, but I feel that uh, it's an important thing to get out there. So with that being said, guys, uh, uh, my guest, um, who I'll keep anonymous um, for, for obvious purposes, um, sat down with me and talked about his struggle with addiction. Um, and I, and, I, and I hope you guys um, enjoy this conversation, and uh, hopefully it's informative, and uh, you'll have a little bit more knowledge about uh, the, the process of uh, addiction and what it is, and uh, someone struggling with it, and how how hard it is, and how much um, we need to pay attention to it. I guess that's why I'm doing this. Um, that being said, uh, listen to my conversation. We're just going to jump into it, and I'll let you guys listen, and we'll we'll talk after uh, the conversation. All right, guys, here we go, guys. It's time to go Inside the Whale. Guys, now you might whale. Show us your crooked jaw. Show us your wrinkled brow. Rise. He rises! 
that's it. And that's how it goes. So um, we're going to get started. This is a uh, thank you for doing this, for sitting down. I think it's an important topic. And I think that, uh, you know, Nantucket has had a, a dark secret about its heroin problem for a long time. So the fact that you're willing to come and talk about it, I think it's important, uh, especially your story. So I think we should just talk about when you when did you start uh, using? Are we talking about using opiates or just the actual using? Just uh, when did you start? Yeah. When did you start using opiates? Opiates came pretty early for me. Um, I came from, you know, there it was in, had a little bit of money and uh, we traveled through different assortments of using pretty quickly by the time I was, I'd say about 17 years old. It's the first time somebody actually, I can't even say that that was heroin. Um, but a freshman in high school, I tried my first Percocet. So that's a pretty young age. And this 14. is what, no, what year is this? This is, by 85. And uh, you've been struggling with addiction your whole life. You, yeah. You're a full-blown addict. You've mm -hmm. been uh, in and out of uh, treatment centers, um, sober for a long time. And, mm -hmm. you know, you recently relapsed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sorry that you went through that. But, uh, you know, you're on the other side of it. But I do think it's important, um, especially what's going on in Nantucket. Every community, uh, it seems to be dealing with this issue. You know, it's, it's, uh, I remember like early on, especially with, with the start of heroin, you know, we'd all had to travel to cities and now that's by far not even close to the truth. I mean, you know, like we have a house in Vermont, you know, I remember used to traveling up to Vermont when I was in my twenties and that's where I'd go kick. And now I have friends that live up there that just say like, even the town of like Westover and like Mount Snow is decimated. Businesses are going out because they can't get employees. Um, you know, there's a they need, they're in need of a police force now due to heroin sales and you know heroin addiction. Um, they weren't established ready for treatment facilities for for like New Hampshire and Vermont because there was such a low amount of addicts. And now, with the influx of the heroin, it's overloaded. Um, the more common heroin addict these days is actually you know a suburbia white kid. Yeah, and it's it just seems to be you know it's an epidemic and it's all over the news and stuff. And Nantucket uh, is has been struggling with it too. In fact, I just was pulled up this article. Um, it was written in Town and Country magazine, you, but it was talking about just the use of, uh, you know, how Nantucket opiates were on the rise. And it's, uh, I just was curious since, you know, as an addict, what, why do you think it's become so, uh, so mainstream? What, what's going, in your opinion, what's going on with the heroin epidemic from an addict? From an addict, I think one, it's become more socially acceptable because, like I said, that's not interesting anymore. I mean, have you seen that episode of uh, Cape Cod, uh, Heroin Cape Cod? I did. I did. I did see it on HBO. It's horrible. It's horrible. Every every uh, person they had in there had a bad ending. And I think the problem with it is, one, it's so addicting. It's absolutely addicting. If you like using on any level, if you like the, the you know, occasional joint, few beers, you know, those things are basically used kind of as breaks from life, even if you're not an addict. And now the extreme accessibility to it, even for young kids, it's easier to find heroin than it is to find someone to buy you a beer. And it's equally as cheap, if not cheaper. So all you need to do is try it once. Chances are you're probably going to try it again. Chances are. And then that becomes a habit, especially if you get in a group of friends of it. So, but, but the, a lot of the linkages, it started with, you know, the, the over prescri uh, prescriptions of opioids, but I don't remember in high school, you know, there was marijuana, there was beer and stuff. I don't remember ever having Percocets or that kind of stuff around. W what do you think, where did that come from? What, what that sort of, 
because I guess you know that that seems to be popular now, and that's where the high school kids were taking pills. And I don't, I, maybe I just wasn't hanging out with those kind of kids. But I, I, just, I just I'm curious to know your opinion on how that where the shift came. There was a, some. Is it that doctors were just over prescribing things? Well, Obviously, when oxycotton came out. You know, oxycotton was supposed to be a cure all for for pain. And it became one of the most addicting substances in the world. I mean, it turned house moms and soccer moms into prostitutes. I mean, it became one of the worst drugs ever. To me, you know, like you could almost call like how they said the start, the beginning of the junkie was the Civil War. You know what I mean? You know, because uh, of morphine. Morphine. And it literally started because it's a genetic disease. It started addicts in this country, like no other country. And then I, oxycontin to me is almost like a, a metaphor of that except it's set, it sent opiates and addiction outside the cities so it's only a matter of time where you start taking a pill such as a prescribed pill such as oxycontin and then say you become unprescribed oxycontin and you still need to seek those so if you don't have the gene we should we, we i want to talk about addiction and and where it's it's a disease i i believe it is a disease just like cancer well it's in the same book as cancer but and, the, and and we're starting to see a shift on how it's treated. Um, but I, I think that you people that are are born that way. So if if you don't have an addicted personality and you're not per se an addict, but can someone oxycontin's that strong? It can turn a non-addict into an addict. Well, it turned countless people, it destroyed countless families. Yeah, you don't need to be born an addict. It's, you don't start somewhere, and just because those families that are genetically inclined it doesn't stay within that family tree. I mean, that would keep the disease problem or the addiction problem fairly small. No, you know, I, in my opinion of what I've seen, in, especially being in, like in the rooms of 12 fellowships, I'd say 50-50, 60-40, either way, of people that just started off, you know, entertainment reasons of using or people that had parents or grandparents using. It's, it's fairly equal, but it all ends up in the same in the same area. Like the person that was genetically inclined isn't any worse than the person that eventually becomes addicted. Okay. Yeah, well, I, w I guess my point was that someone that maybe if they weren't genetically inclined, meaning they didn't have addiction in their family, starts using an oxy after an accident or something, and then it spirals out of control. And you see a lot of people in your uh, group meetings and stuff that... I actually have some really close, close friends. And I remember growing up with them, and I was disaster by the time I was in high school complete mess I'd already been to a treatment facility you know a couple times before I was out of high school ended up being kicked out of high school um you got kicked out of high school I was kicked out of high school I was told I was not allowed back but prior to that I had just what were you using at that point heroin and cocaine well I mean of course I smoked marijuana and drank with everybody else but did you very, shoot shoot it the first time or did you no I didn't shoot it till I was probably about 20 years old so I went two or three years without shooting it. And that's a big distinction. Is it is it in when you when the first time you do shoot it versus I think the only distinction in that is is the way people look at people who have a opiate addiction whether they're shooting or not shooting because there's no such there's no difference in the detox. That's a complete myth. Like if you're shooting it or or sniffing it coming off of it, it's a complete myth. You're equally as addicted, you equally crave it, you're equally become physically dependent. They're a little, they're, it's a little, literally a myth. And then the, the funny myth is people talk about how it's stronger and it's e easier to get to. Your tolerance builds up either way on every level. So once you start shooting it, you're stuck shooting it. You can't go back to sniffing it. Hmm. So it, it's a complete myth. You, you but socially, like if you would look at me and we weren't in this interview and I wasn't here as an addict and you found that I was using 
opiates or drugs of any type and you found out I was snorting or taking pills or if you found out I had a needle in my back pocket, you would look at me differently. But ultimately, as far as the disease goes or coming off of it or, you know, it's it basically has the same end game. Hmm. You know, I was just thinking, do you think do you look at alcohol as a gateway? There was a uh, um, one of the DA's. Uh, was quoted in the paper saying he it was had to do with legalization of marijuana and he thinks he he his view was that that legalization was ba- you know marijuana was a gateway drug i was curious as an addict do you think marijuana and alcohol are gateways drugs i, I could speak for myself um to be honest i was terrified of my father and his view i'm using drugs and what would happen as an early age but the day i started drinking or the first time i started smoking marijuana i remember i did it in a tree fort i was really young how old were you um 12, 13. Where'd you get the booze? Um, father's liquor cabinet. Doers. And, uh, but I remember that day was the first time I'd experienced, we'll call it a buzz. And that day, I, all of a sudden, any fears I had, I became extremely willing. And that's where the genetic inclination comes into play. Let's say you weren't genetic, genetically inclined. As soon as I got that relief, because being born with a disease, the disease Basically, I won't say it has nothing to do with using drugs. If you're born with a disease, you already have addictive behaviors. That's the difference between somebody who, who becomes an addict through using or is born an addict. I had addictive behaviors as a child immediately, whether it came to... So early on, like... I remember, like, my mother, I was hooked on Legos. And if you gave me one of those things to build... Like I would hide, I would do it for binges, 12, 18 hours. And my mother would come into the so room. So that addictive personality was just there. It was there. And then you put alcohol in there. And of course. It was the first time we're doing it. So also now I get a break. All those behaviors, all the anxieties that, you, that a, a child probably shouldn't have. You know, I remember walking to high school, always having like social anxiety. And now I got my first break, whether it be marijuana or, or, or a beer. But it was my first break and it became willing to try every drug okay what is this one going to do for me what's that one going to do for me and um it immediately became a lifestyle before it became a habit it was a lifestyle in your background your upper middle class Mm -hmm. it was not a you know it was not a socioeconomic thing per se which you know i don't know whether that's relevant or not but i just think it's important to mention you know here let's fix that for you in my case i think it was completely relevant um you know, there was people like, let's say, you know, you're a young inner city kid and for you to get, you know, 20 or $30 to go out and use for the night, you know, obviously this is in the eighties where that was a little bit more money today. That's really nothing. But back then, like we could go to our parents that it's Friday night. Can I have 40 bucks? You know, and a few of us would do that and we'd go buy an eight ball Coke. You know what I mean? So like getting drugs for us back then in, in a suburb area you know, we had a lot of it, you know, and a lot of people took advantage of it. So there was a ton of it was available. The same thing as it went for kids today was how it was for me. You know, I could purchase a gram of cocaine easier than I could go buy a case of beer. It was so much easier. And, you know, my school is one of the best schools in the area. You know, I grew up in a really nice area. Yeah, you did. And that's just, uh, and then that's why I think it's pertinent for Nantucket too. You know, it's important, I think, the, to to hear your story. And I think people listening can take you know whatever they want from your story but i think it's uh you know just hearing someone's journey through addiction you know you you went your addiction put you in jail yeah and uh i was um curious to know when that moment was though that you knew that like when did you knew that you understood what being an addict was and you knew this is you're like i have a problem and i don't want to stop 
it was actually really, really early on. Um, remember my first, first time ever, I realized that I was completely out of control. There was a time I knew that I was an addict. And to be honest, I kind of wore it as a badge of pride like early on when like it wasn't affecting my life. But that's probably a youthful thing, right? It being, is a youthful being a, thing. You know, 18 but, year old, like I don't give a fuck. But it was also at that age, earlier than that age, that I realized I was out of control and it was terrifying. You know, I was, at, I was working at this gas station and I remember um, in this gas station I had stashed away. I had value, marijuana, alcohol, and cocaine. And then I was purchasing heroin all in the same day. And then we're talking about a 16, 17 year old kid. And Jesus. I remember going to my, my mother, um, I was getting picked up by my boss the next morning. I woke up and I remember waking up and honking the horn and bouncing off each one of my hallways on my way out the door for my boss honking the thing. And I walked outside, vomited outside of his truck, hopped in his car and he looked at me. He's like, you all right? And to me, it was just another day. It could have been a Tuesday morning. It could have been a Sunday morning. I don't even remember, but that was just normal for me and I remember I got in the truck and I was like yeah I'm fine and he kind of made me look like dude you just vomited outside of my truck <laughs> and uh and I got in there and I remember taking all of those different drugs that were there every one of my friends that worked there we all we had this little rule you had to leave behind whatever you took and so it was just there for us and I remember that day and I called my mother that time it was the first time ever and I was saying you know not only can I not stop but I'm completely out of control it was like my first now, was there a friend shift, you know, like we did, were you hanging around the wrong crowd, that kind of thing? Or did you, was it just, did all the other friends around you, they were involved doing the same stuff or was it, you were clearly on a different level or? Actually, no. I remember I have some friends that were on the, I'm not going to say the high school, my, the high school football team, um, loved doing opiates before they, before they played and they were a really good football team. I, you know, personally was, I was a deadhead. So that kind of culture obviously didn't frown on, on using on a regular basis, but I was really friends with everybody in my high school, everybody, you know, I didn't fit into one crowd. I had my special friends obviously, but there was no one that, that I didn't get along. So I can't blame it on my friends. I will say this. Um, I held off until using and that whole thing about, you talked about gateway who I totally agree is an absolute gateway, but I also totally fell into peer pressure. Which what, what you agree? What is it? Which is it? Gateway. Any substance. Any substance. Marijuana is an absolute, you know, I get torn. Will, will they end up trying it anyway? Because it's so, you know, but now saying it's completely legal, you can go buy it just like, you know, any other, you know, like go buy an aspirin. I'm afraid it is going to cause. I mean, I, and I also am someone that agrees that there are a lot of benefits to it, but I really believe there are some people, and I don't know what the percentage would be, that may have never smoked or may have never smoked as frequently if it wasn't completely legal now. And I believe there's a percentage of those people that have smoked marijuana when it's illegal, it already has like this little yeah, thing. Yeah, but here's doing. the deal. If you're going to do that with marijuana, you have to do it with alcohol. Because in my opinion, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, if you think I'm wrong, but alcohol is absolutely just as much a gateway drug as marijuana. So if you're going to have a legal, you know, I don't think you can, you can't have one and the other. That's my point. Um... I just think it's going to take a little time to get used to it. Like I think at some point down 10 years down the road, it's not even going to be thought of anything strange of marijuana being legal. But I do remember holding off on using that because it was illegal and because our parents would flip out if we use it. I mean, now the point, if you're 18 and you bring home a joint, you're sitting on your front porch and your parents will say anything, it's like having a beer. I mean, 
I it's a slippery slope. So I mean, like I'm I'm torn with it, and also being an addict and seeing the destruction. Maybe for the person who has it doesn't have it directly in their face all the time, might feel differently. I mean, I have people in my life, in my family, that don't have the issue and have smoke regularly, like people have a glass of wine recreationally. Yeah, and it and they'll never go any farther than that, and you know the whole legalization of it. What this is what bothers me. I was at my it was about two or three months ago. I was in my truck, and uh radio commercial came on you're suffering from de depression um joint pain um are you having you know issues with anxiety medical marijuana is now legal in your state contact your local physician for what medical um marijuana could be used for you so now we're on the radio talking about it a friend of mine that lives in fort collins colorado uh, colorado they had a uh, it's a big road runner on the side of a uh looks like an ice cream truck with a joint in his mouth now playing the little music, driving around a street, selling marijuana. There's that kid playing like a video. Cream okay. like, there's a kid playing a video game who might not got high that day. I mean, when, when do you stop where it's legal? Yeah. To me, that, to me that's, that's way, way, way too far. Well, no one drives around, you know, neighborhood kids selling, you know, six packs out of the back of the car legally. I mean, uh, I think that what you're talking about is, is interesting. And you're, you're a guy that's been on the front lines of addiction your whole life. So that's, uh, you know, it's close to you and you see the other side of it where a lot of us don't. I'll tell you this in the last, I don't know what it is. I've been dealing with the disease of addiction. You know, I'm in my mid forties now, you know, and, um, I've been a heroin addict since I was 17 and an addict my whole life and using since I was 12, 13 years old. And I have never in my life, and I've been out of you know, prisons, I've been out of, of recovery. I've been out, so I, I mean, on every level of where I would see the death, the destruction of it, in this last year or two, I've never seen so many 20, early 20 year olds pass away. Yeah, how many people, you? I know, how many people died close to you this year that you um, know of? Well, I had one of my closest friends in the world who had 17 years clean um, pass this, away. This, is, this blew me away, 17 years. This just shows you the power of addiction, 17 years. 17 years clean and... Um, he was one of the best friends. I mean, I've, he did so much for me and he did so much for so many people through, you know, recovery. And, uh, he started using again. And did you uh, know he was using? Yeah. I confronted him, um, about it two weeks prior to his death. And then I found out that he was using needles again. And, um, he literally was at the point where he didn't want to discuss it. And he let me know, I'm here. You want to call him about anything else, but I'm not willing. And that's the tough part of, and you, you know, you could call up a friend who has cancer, but like, are you not handling your, or let's say the diabetic, are you, buddy, you're not taking your insulin and kind of force that down their throat. You can't change an addict's mind until he's ready to stop. It's one of the, it is the trickiest disease there is. It's, it's well, a, the rock bottom, right? Is either death or well, they call it jails, institutions, and death are the three places you end up. And you, did you, you've almost died once. Um, I've been given Narcan three times which I do want to talk about Narcan, but I want to, so um, your bottom though was jail. Um, no. no, no, I got used to jail. Yeah, you get used to jail pretty quickly. To be honest, it's a combination. And well, remember, well, well, this is all my opinion, all right? You have to hope when you're an addict that gets caught out at a young age that a part in, some people might disagree, to, might disagree with this, you have to hit enough 
or even one. It doesn't have to be enough, but a, a bottom that's brutal enough. And it doesn't have to be financial. It doesn't have to be prison. It's whatever really hits you inside as the worst with a combination of growing up out of a certain age. Like, do you know how rare it is for an addict that I've seen? And I've been in these rooms a long, long time to get clean in the early 20s. Like the percentages in, in we're talking lengths of clean time, not coming in and getting clean for 30 days. I'm talking about real recovery. Early 20s, it's so so rare, you know, and now then, and I'm not going to bring up a whole different amount of subject, but it's a boxing thing and all these new things, you know, people are offering it so quickly instead of getting just clean, you know, naturally clean. And, um, you know, with all these other, you know, avenues of without having to put the effort into the meetings and the problem I have, I know we're quickly jumping off here. Of things no, like, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. I want to talk about like, maybe we're missing the mark on treatment. I'd love to know your opinion on what, you know, the, ch- my, my wife's in the medical field, and so quickly they offer or suggest methadone maintenance or Suboxone. Now, what the thing is, this is a disease. And as I said, you know, I struggled with behaviors prior to ever using. Now, when they say addiction, and me and you actually briefly spoke on this, it's not called drug addiction, it's called addiction. Um, when you have the disease of addiction, you act out in any possible way. Like once you get clean, doesn't mean life's great. You continue to go to those meetings because the disease of addiction will come at you in any way possible. Usually the last time when you relapse is, is usually a process and you're behaving poorly prior to that. You're not just living this, going to meetings every day, writing on your step or calling your sponsor. And then on one day you pick up. There's a reason that you're starting to live a certain way. And so what is it when you're relapsing and you're in it and you're like, you, you, like that's that second day that you've used again, you've been clean for so long and you know you're doing this wrong. What is it that is in you? You're just like, this is wrong. You can't stop it though. It's so powerful that you can't stop. The disease of addiction is a progressive illness. So let's say for instance, you were an addict and you stopped today. Let's say you stayed clean for seven years. Basically, it's not even where you left off. It's almost like that disease is building up in seven years. It's getting stronger even though you haven't picked up. So the day you pick up, you're not starting over like when you were a kid. You're not even starting over like the day you stopped using. This disease is getting bigger and bigger and stronger. It is the, one of the worst diseases on the planet. And when you pick up, you are so quickly back to like you never stopped using. You know, my recent relapse, as you spoke of, um, it, being an addict is really scary. I had this issue with my stomach and um, like an idiot, I'll be honest with you, I ignored it for a couple months to the point where I was in excruciating pain. I went with my mother-in-law. I ended up going to the emergency room with my mother-in-law who has 20 some odd years of recovery. And um, she had to be really careful about you know using drugs. And I ended up getting shots of morphine for the pain. And um, you know I was in crippling pain. And it wasn't like the next day I went out and went, took off on this run. But I will say it was the very next day. It was back? Every, yeah, it was back. And it, I mean the disease. And it was talking to my ear. So even though I wasn't using, I, I, it was, I don't know if I could, this is, and this is the tricky part. I don't know if it would say it was a mistake to use At the time. I was in so much pain. I don't know what they would have done if I didn't do it, but because of it, I was a different person again, literally the next morning I was the next, I was a different person again. The obsession to use was so strong and I hadn't thought about using in a couple like it hasn't even popped into my head in years. And then all of a sudden the next day I was like back to, how you know, do you think subconsciously you might've pushed yourself in that scenario? Cause it was like in your own weird way, creating a loophole that you could get in there and get, and get it. Well, I've had this pain so I could do that. Right. Cause in, 
when you're an addict, you'll do anything, right? You'll. I think in the past, I. You it's know, almost like sociopath behavior, right? Yeah. In, in, in this situation, no, I mean, I fear it. And um, I had an issue with Tramadol once when I asked for a non narcotic. And now that actual drug, Tramadol, has been upped into a different class of narcotics where they are, they are realizing it is a narcotic. I had an issue with Tramadol once. And, and I know the fear of it. And um, my disease, with the progression of it, and especially as, as I old I am, is literally a life or death situation the second I pick up. And that night, to be honest, it's one of the reasons I ignored it and ignored it and ignored it. If I felt, I honestly feel like if I was using that as an excuse to use, I was in pain for a couple months to the point where I just couldn't sit up anymore. I was in too much pain. And that night, I just wasn't thinking rationally. I just wanted to be out of pain, you know? And remember, they gave me a couple shots. The first couple barely worked. The first one, I didn't even know they really gave to me. I was in so much pain. But the third one, they gave me all of a sudden it was like I remember kind of rubbing my mustache like I am right now all I wanted was a cigarette and I remember thinking I'm enjoying this uh-oh like that, yeah. it, it's there like I'm really enjoying this is it the kind of thing you think about every moment of the day is it is it like a carrying around this thing that no a thought pops in your head and you're just like oh it's if you're working a program, absolutely not. You can go years without it ever popping up. But the disease of addiction, and this is where like people really need to understand of it not of, of being addiction and not drug addiction. The disease of addiction will make me obsess on anything. You know, I literally I'm three years clean of gambling. Like I and I never even had gambled before. I was never even a gambler. Right, just, you know what I mean? I, like I had acted out on that level. I had acted out. Anything that feels good can be our new problem when you're an addict and you're clean. The drugs are not there anymore. Something needs to replace it. And that's why you'll see people, you know, one year, two years, 10 years, 20 years, still going to meetings. You're not really worried as much about picking up when you have 20 years clean drugs. You're worried about starting to live like a scumbag because there's, there's a saying in the rooms, like you could sound great when you're at a meeting. You can raise your hand and talk about, um, you know, spirituality. You could talk about, you know, all the meetings you go to and how life is terrific. And we always say, if you know your recovery is working well, follow the attic home. It's how you live when no one's looking. Of course. Am I cheating on my wife? Am I gambling? Am I, uh, you know, like strung out on pornography? You know, a lot of people get hooked on cheating and hookers, like some horrible, horrible habits that can be detrimental to your life. You know I mean? You could lose your whole family over, over a sex addiction or a gambling addiction or food addictions. You know, people gain tremendous amount of weight like unhealthy, unhealthy amounts of weight. Yeah, food addiction is a real problem. I <laughs> guess it is. It's a disease of addiction. Yeah, and so like uh, most of my friends are in the double-digit years of clean, some double decades of clean, and it's a daily struggle of like I'm acting out really poorly in food. I'm, I'm acting out in isolation. I love sitting in my own shit. Excuse my language. Um, and, and that's basically why, you know, we continue to attend. You know, they would say, you know, it's, it's easy to quit drugs, you know, to stay off them is where the world work comes in. And they call it life on life terms. You could come life this, on life's terms. Yeah. You come into this thing and like, oh, my God, I've stayed clean 90 days. I feel terrific physically. And they also call that a pink cloud. That pink cloud fades away. Wow, I have to work 40 hours a week. Wow, this phone bill comes every single month. It doesn't stop. Wow, you know, my girlfriend's driving me crazy. You know, my, my mother is just, I'm like, you know, like that's when, okay, now where do I go? Well, how do I handle all this? Do I pick up drugs? Do I act out in gambling? 
do I isolate from everybody and stop attending meetings where you can get called out on your behaviors? You know, I mean, it gets really, really complicated. You know, putting down the drugs, you could physically do that. Is there you, a lot of politics within the meetings when you go? Is there like, because it becomes a social, all these social interactions happen at meetings. Is it political like that? Like people will like. Can you explain political? Well, just like someone may, you know, if you're going to the same meeting with the same group of people, everyone starts to know your tendencies and stuff. And everyone kind of can be like, well, I know that guy. I saw him over, you know, if you're in a small town, all of a sudden the community that you're going to for, you know, for support can also be like everyone knows everybody's business. And it's funny you say when you said small town, that's why I smiled real quick. Being a regular member of whatever fellowship you go to, I personally attend Narcotics Anonymous, and um, it is a small town. You could be in a huge city, and it's a small town. Yeah, well, Nantucket's a small island, too. So, so they, we know it's really funny. You really have to do your best effort to stay out of the gossip. We do. We all know everybody's stuff. I mean, you're talking about your per private and personal issues in these meetings. You know what I mean? And it'd be nice to say that it stays anonymous, and people with good recovery do keep things anonymous. Not everybody comes into these rooms in the same place. They're still very sick and they will gossip about stuff. So we tend to know a lot of people, this one's acting out this way, this one's acting out this way. Okay, he said this, but you know what he did when he got home. And um, they also know who are the people, like when you ask for a sponsor, who are the people that truly, you know, live life. Like I picked my sponsor because, you know, I one of my struggles is humility. It's one of the first steps for me in the process of relapse. When I start thinking, oh, I'm making a good amount of money. I drive a nice truck, I have a nice home, I have a lovely wife. I start thinking I'm in control again. Now my, my sponsor who has, I think, he's coming up on like 30 years clean. Wow. Um, he's, I picked him as a sponsor because he honestly is one of the most humble human beings in the world. So he, humility for me is the process of me relapsing. My sponsor is a person who's extremely humble. You know what I mean? Like, huh. like he will- How long did it take you to get to this realization? About, the humility, like the, the personal, because a lot of it is like understanding yourself. And, you know, when you're in your adult life, you're still, you know, there's still stuff you're figuring out. How long did it take you to? Well, you know, we all, there's another saying, you know, addicts are um, egomaniacs with inferiority complexes. And, uh, <laughs> but I've always, I've had that since I was a kid. I've always thought very nicely of myself. <laughs> and uh, I remember being in prison and, you know what I mean, where I was completely... Not a big shot, nor am I anywhere, but thinking I'm a little better than everybody. Like it never really leaves my, my head at times when I'm not working on myself and spirituality is what takes me away from that. You know what I mean? And it's one of the biggest, you know, parts of recovery. You know what I mean? Without spirituality, we're, we're, you know, we're far from whatever you're from, you know, for me, it's God, but you're farther away from your higher power. And we start to think we're in control. When we think we're in control, we think we got ourselves clean. When we think we got ourselves clean, we don't need any help. That's where it comes into play. When we don't need any help, all right, I can go to the casino and play a hand. I could start running around with women. I could start thinking money is my God. I need, just need money. I need to, I start to think that it's less on the inside and more how I look. I remember literally, this is funny too, because like in my early 20s, I didn't even know who I was. I didn't know if I, I didn't even know what kind of hobbies I liked, but I wouldn't go to a meeting if I wore that same shirt in that same week. Because what if I saw this cute girl and she wrecked four days. Wait, wasn't he wearing that shirt? And like, like I'm that important, first of all. But like, that's how you know. Well, that's obsessive, almost. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. how insecure I was. One and two, how obsessive I was because it was all like, all right, I'm not on drugs anymore. It's got to be girls. Got to find girls. Got to find something to make me feel okay instead of just feeling okay with myself. 
took a long, long, long time. And like, like, you know, my wife's been in recovery for a long time. This is the thing that it's not like once you got it, you got it. You, we all go back and forth with it. Like, you know, like you could have a great week, you know, you hit your and you're praying, you're grateful for everything in your life. And the very next week, everything is a problem. And the funny thing is as addicts, we tend to complicate everything. In fact, the, most of the things that I complain about today is everything I've ever dreamed of having that I never thought was possible. Work's too busy. My wife won't stop, you know, but yeah, I, I have a lovely, loyal, faithful, hardworking wife. You know what I mean? And I never thought you'd have a, even have a healthy relationship. You know, <laughs> right. you know, the mortgage payment. I have a mortgage, you know, my truck payment. I have a new truck, you know, businesses. I have a business. Yeah, and I mean, it seems to me you're... I would, you are uh, somewhat of a success story too. I mean, you're still clearly, you're honest about it. I mean, the fact that you're willing to talk about it is great, but I mean, it is. You're able to look at yourself and, you know, talk about where you've come and what you've done. It's, uh, you know, that's, I would think that's probably part of the process too, right? It's, you know, and you kind of get used to it and you take it for granted. And the funny thing is like, you know, addicts are some of the nicest people in the world. You know, we had issues when we were young, you know, whether even if it wasn't from drugs. And, you know, when you start to deal with these things, you become caring, you know, especially because, you know, recovery is a spiritual process. So you become a very caring person. And it's funny, you'll sit in this room with some of the best people in the world, you know, and you end up picking certain meetings. There's some meetings that are like these big, huge meetings, a lot of people coming in and it's, you know, you have to pick which meetings are good for you. But you'll get you, the meetings I go to, my home group and some of my regulars, they're built with these incredible people. And it's, it's funny to think, like, even if you met me, you'd never know I spent years in prison. You know, and, yeah. and some of these people that you look at them, you look like they, you know, could be in the uh, Republican Party <laughs> or running for president, you know, but that guy, you know, once killed somebody and, you know, was in a gang. And, and it's funny how recovery completely can transform us, like completely transform us. You know, um, the second steps that, you know, come in, you know, it's about, you know, came to believe that our higher, you know, our higher power can restore us to sanity. And when you first get in, you really believe, like I believed I had had short periods of clean time and I believed that going to meetings could help me stop using drugs. And it took so, so many years for me to believe that recovery could change me as a person. I could be a nice guy. I could be a trusting guy. I could be a faithful guy. I could be somebody that says what he does. I could be somebody that cares about people other than myself, you know, which when you do that your whole life where everything's about you, you know, all I cared about was myself. So, I mean, talk about, a, you know, a trained behavior of, you know, trying to unlearn that one, you know. So how do you have a healthy relationship when you've always just been about yourself, you know. And, uh, you know, recovery teaches us all that. How did you, uh, I want to ask you, how did you get through prison? How many years in prison? Were several, you know, several years in prison. Um, at the beginning, and you, you probably won't even understand this, my life using prior to what I went in for the long period of time, um, and this goes to show how bad addiction really was. You we're talking about, you know, a suburb white kid. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a killer. I was a kid who, you know, stole for drugs. And, and I remember my mother first telling me it was the first time that she'd ever slept. Like she enjoyed that I was in prison because she was more concerned about me dying every day. And she knew where I was when I was in prison. And, um, as sick as it may sound, once I finished, you know, the physical detox of it, was the first time I was actually in the same bed every night. So and what is that like when you, I, I just, can you describe like that? Do you remember the first night of being in jail? Like, is it, was that your low? Were you like, this is the... This was my first night in jail ever. I mean, um, 
I was in Connecticut at the Hartford, uh, it's called the Meadows, the Hartford uh, County Correctional. And there's this guy they called C.O. Disco. He was this old guy, but he talked to the correction officers too much. And a couple guys were in the back cube. It wasn't cells there. It was like cube cubicles where they had bunk beds and they were smoking a joint. And he stood up and said, oh, do you smell that? Not even realizing that somebody could hear him, but you need to mind your own business. Correction so guys were smoking a joint in the, in the back. And uh, there's a lot of drugs in prison. You could use every day. So... See that just blows. That blows my. You can you you can get drugs in prison. It's like we don't even want to get into the details of how they come in. <laughs> but, uh, no, we do. What the? F- so how does that? Is it just crooked guards and? No, to be honest with you, all it takes is this, and and um, um, your girlfriend visits you. She puts the heroin in the balloon. She puts it in your mouth as you're going to change. To go, um, you have to do a quick strip search. As you're taking your clothes off, you take that balloon, you stick it into your butt, you put your clothes on, you kind of hold it in there, you do a quick squat, put your clothes back on, you walk back, and you push it out when you get to your cell. And Jesus. a lot of people, there's a lot of visits, and uh, a lot of people's family members or girlfriends or friends will all do that for them. And um, I literally had a friend once who did it for me. It was a guy. And so you actually got heroin in prison? A ton of it, yeah, yeah. So I remember it was a very close friend of mine. In fact, you know him, and um, he was teasing me, going, "So how does that feel?" Because I had stuck it inside me. <laughs> Jesus. And uh, he, he was saying that I was he was leaving. He was he's a ball buster, you know, teasing me about it. And I said, uh, "It feels all right." And, but the problem is, I was as I was shaking his hand, I was like, "I used this hand to stick it up there." <laughs> <Jesus>. So. <laughs> So anyway, going back to my, this is a great topic for this podcast, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, we're well, not talking about. Uh, I just wanted to, you know, like prison. I would think, uh, like you said, your mom said it helped you. Uh, well, my first night, and this is, and this is, and this is the kind of thing that you will see every night. Just, I just had the unfortunate uh, opportunity of this being my first night. So he says that too too loudly, and a correction officer sees him, and he goes, and this correction officers go and bust these guys for smoking the joint. Everybody heard him say it. And the COs, to be honest, correctional officers aren't the most that they grew up in the neighborhoods, usually where the jail are at, jails are at, the friends, brothers, cousins, neighbors of some of these inmates, and they told us who said it. So the lights go down, and um, and you're just in the cell, or you have a cellmate. I'm in a cube. So there was me and three other people in the cube, uh-huh. and there's this little running joke they have because they say moment of silence. So they have the thing when they turn the lights off, so everybody gets quiet, and then people always yell moment of violence because if something's gonna go down, it's usually then. So I'm sitting up and I'm on the top bunk, totally new to this. And I start looking down and I see people pulling masks over their faces. And I'm looking and now they're looking in my direction. And now I'm not privy to this information that just went down with this. Yeah, all you know is ma- you just, With this yeah. marijuana. And so I'm the new guy and I'm thinking, what is going on here? They're all looking directly towards my cube. There's three or four of them pulling masks, looking right at me. And I'm going, oh my God, am I going to die? Like what's going on here? Um, but two seconds later, they disappeared off of their bunks and they came in flying into my cube. And what they do is it's called a lock and a sock. They take the lock off their lockers. They'll tie a sock through it, tie a knot on that as a handle. And they came in and started whipping disco. That was the guy's name yeah. with these locks. I remember hearing it cracking on his skull, this thing. The blood was shooting, you know, a head wound, shoot, you know, gives up a lot of blood. Jesus. Pulling my sheet up, and it was just splattering everywhere. And I remember thinking to myself, like... Is he screaming? Yes, yeah, screaming. 
and I was screaming, help, Hoping help, that the, help, that the guards would come down. Yeah. And it literally took about 15, 20 seconds for the CEOs to put the lights on. So this guy just sat there getting whooped with the locks. I mean, whipping them like whips and just smashing into him. Were you, were you scared? Were you like, oh, my God, are they coming for me? Like... No, I had no fear at all, Doug. That was, oh <laughs> I was God. terrified. Yeah, I was absolutely, I'd never seen anything like that before. And uh, I was, you know, like a 20-year-old kid. I was, I was mortified. You know, I was like, how am I going to get through all this? I, I can't do this kind of thing. I'm not this kind of guy. Do I have to have a weapon? Like, you know, I didn't know what was going on. And um, the scary thing is, you know, using drugs and, and running on the streets, I eventually became very used to this. And uh, to be honest, I spent a good portion of my 20s in prison. And the scariest thought is I look back at my 20s and um, some of the best time, it took me a long time to get off of drugs. Um, some of the best times that I had in my, in my youth were in prison, were not outside of prison. It was the first time I, like, I smiled and I, and I slept in the same place and I laughed out loud. And you know it was just removing the drugs from me. Granted, there was a lot of scary activity that went on around me. But you really, really kind of got used to it. Yeah, you had a gang take you in, right? That's how you survived. Uh, yeah, yeah. I didn't know we were. Oh God. I didn't know. <laughs> I know that's gross. I didn't. We don't have to talk about it. We don't have to talk about it. No, it's it, it wasn't a gang that took me in. I was in a, a, a town and um, I was selling heroin. And uh, this is you know years on when I had really gotten more merged in the street life. I wasn't a yeah, white we, suburb kid anymore. We don't have to talk about. It. We can move on if, if we don't are comfortable. I don't. You know, you know. <laughs> well, to be honest, I almost laugh at because it it's embarrassing to me who I am today and the the fact that I was a gang member is um, it's an embarrassing topic. Um, I was told that I wasn't allowed to sell drugs in the street because this one gang. I'm not going to mention the gang names. Yeah. Um, said they helped me get these drugs back that I had gotten stuck up for. And the president of that family or gang, whatever you want to call it, said, all right, well, that was a, an action of the gang because it just happened to be all in the same gang members that helped me retrieve the, the stolen property, we'll call it. And they said, all right, if you want to continue to sell here, you have to become a member of this gang. And uh, that's how it happened. And, Did you have uh, to do like the gang initiation? No, it's not like, yeah, you know, that you know, it's not like the blood in blood out movies. And I'm sure it is like that. Maybe other places I had to learn a, a group of rules. I had to learn. a Gotcha. It, it, was, it was more like that. <sighs> I had to know a certain the right people. And um, and then I had to obey guidelines once I became incarcerated. Uh, I just think, you know, hearing you talk about it, just it's just paying the price for addiction. You know, it's a I, I think that that's one of the things that I really wanted to have you talk about and and you know seeing hearing your story and then understanding uh you know what do you think um now that you, where you are right now like what what's your, how do you think we should be treating addiction what are some of the things that you think that we could you know that need to be done number one never this has become the thing let me remember our methadone maintenance and suboxone maintenance don't let anybody tell you any different are a business they're just like any pharmaceutical. It's an absolute business. It's for profit. If anybody thinks like these programs you go do for methadone or, or these doctors that prescribe, they get paid a lot of money to, be, to become suboxone providers. These methadone clinics are extremely profitable. Like I've been on methadone three times. And like if you want to go up in milligrams, 
Oh, this is a quick question at the uh, desk when you're getting your dose. If you methadone wanna, gets you high, right? Yeah, you end up getting used to it. But say, for instance, you took methadone right now and you didn't have a drug habit, you would be completely so high, you wouldn't know. It's a, it's one of the strongest opiates there is. And uh, So how did methadone get started to get you? Why, why was it? What's its story? How did it start being used? Methadone was actually created by, it's called Dolphin, was created by Hitler, which is a great, yeah. It really? was created by Hitler and he, was, and he gave it to his soldiers. And um, the reason why methadone was used, one is because it's the most powerful opiate. And if you take a certain amount of it and, and build up a tolerance to it, you can't use heroin because it's stronger than heroin. So now if you get to usually 80 milligrams or more, you could shoot heroin and not feel it. So they, f they figured if they supply it to you on a daily basis, you'll stop r ripping and running on the streets. You'll stop committing crimes. You can go get a job. All you have to do is show up in the morning, get your dose, and you don't have a choice. You can't use anymore. Um, I don't like to knock methadone maintenance because I do know some friends. It didn't work for me. Um, I do know some friends who saved their lives. And my, even my mother agrees. The very first time I was really young that I ended up methadone, I was on the verge of dying. I was living some very, doing some very dangerous things on the streets. And I got on methadone. It was the first break I had from running the streets. So it does take you away from that. The problem is it's the most, it is the worst withdrawing drug on the planet. Like, like just physically sick. I know like they say heroin withdrawals, it's like throwing up, right? Your body gets physically convulses. Right? Yeah. Coming off of methadone makes kicking heroin look like a field day, like an enjoyable thing. Like they're not even close to each other. You know, after a week or two of coming off of heroin, you know, at the first few days you feel horrible with heroin. Is it you like know, flu? It's like, it's like having a flu with incredible cramps with the most Stomach extreme. Cramps? For me, everybody's a little different. For me, it's my legs or become so cramped up like you, you there's no way you're sleeping and then there's extreme insomnia with extreme extreme anxiety to be honest the emotional we always have this joke and if you say this in a meeting everybody will laugh because they all understand you know coming off you know you'll say you'll see a puppy on a commercial and you'll cry like you're so ripped raw clean that like you're just a mess hmm. you know as equally mentally as you are so like, like you could have the flu like a, the worst flu of your life but you're not going through the emotional trauma of how you were just living, what you may have just done, what crimes you committed, who, you know, who you just ripped off, who you just, you know, what your family's thinking of you. You don't have all that going on with you. And to be honest to me, that's some of the worst parts. So, but going back to what you said about, I think the question was, in your, the fight against addiction, they are offering now, kids will come in 18, 19, 20 years old, never tried AA, NA, or any kind of 12-step fellowship at all, and be like, I think you should go on um, Suboxone or Methanol Maintenance. Now, they're instantly now, if they agree to it, and like I said, it, and, th and this is the, the alluring effect to it. All right, you're addicted to heroin. You could go to a detox and become completely ill and then have to fight going to meetings and get through, you know, whatever mess, or we could give you methadone today. You won't get sick. And you just come and get this every day and you, you know, it's the easier, softer way out. But now you've pretty basically given yourself a prison sentence. You know, like I was on methadone for a long time. You know how embarrassing it is. Even if you get your life together to like go through an airport and have to explain to them, what's this? That's my methadone. Like it's like, it, yeah, it, it's of kind course. of, it's like a chain around your leg. And, um, and then now with the suboxone maintenance, they kind of make it look a little less of a stigma on it because you can get it prescribed by a doctor. So you only have to go see a doctor once a month. And in these 
books, they're saying how it's less addicting. It is so addicting and the withdrawal is so bad. So what they're doing is they're offering these young kids this immediately. Like, I feel like that you should have like several treatment centers under your, under your wing. And hopefully you don't have to get to that point. But like, if you still can't get clean, try treatment again, try treatment again, get back to meetings. But methadone and suboxone should never, ever, ever be a first resort. And unfortunately, they're what, pushing what, it that What would way. be the first resort now that you've been through so many different types of treatments? Um, what would be the first thing that you could recommend? Like, if you're a young your kid opinion. and you have, a, like, all right, let's just say if I had a child who was an addict. Um, I always go about it two different ways. If it was a son or if it was a daughter. <laughs> if I had a son and he got arrested and he had a drug problem, um, once, once somebody's an addict, anything you do that you think you're benefiting or trying to help them, you're hurting them anything bail them out of jail bail them out of a drug debt um give them money enabling enabling um so what i would do is like say if i had a daughter or a son if i had a son he'd rot in jail i don't care if his bond was 50 cents he's not getting any help from me he's gonna know really really quickly because my father and my mother um did, did it for me so i was able to continue to use for years my father made huge jail bonds for me and uh all it did was allow me to be back on the streets to do exactly what i did what you I mean my behavior and thoughts my disease didn't change so why would i do anything different if i did have a daughter you know the scary thing and to be honest there's a lot less women in the rooms because they have to overcome what they did for their and it's it's really sad you know women you know go through some hard times on the streets and they end up doing things that they become very ashamed for if I had a daughter, to be honest, I'd put her in a two-year program. I don't care how much it costs, and I'd send her in the Midwest. Get and her out of there. Yeah, I would. I would handle it a little bit differently. But so, but back to the question is, it would be treatment, and if that treatment fails, it would be treatment again, and treatment again. You know, sometimes, and if it doesn't work, and they end up in jail, then maybe jail's the ticket. For me, treatment didn't do it. So, there, what you're kind of hinting, there's different types of support families can do, and some of the support may not be. You think it's in their best interest but you're ultimately could be shooting yourself in the foot. Any kind of financial support is wrong. Period. I can only, it's just such a super tough call to sit there and say, well, you know, I don't want a parent instinct is I don't want my kid to have to hit rock bottom. And that's really what they're trying to prevent. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, millions of families that are struggling with kids that got hooked on opiates you know and and you know the, the other thing is too is you, you stay around these rooms for decades like i went to my first meeting in 1986 you know it's now 2016 it's a long time and uh so i remember and i know the same people from 1986 that are still in the meetings today and now these same people that have that have gotten these great lives now have children that are at the age where they're addicts and now they're talking about it's not even as much discussing their disease anymore of, of having to go through this, some of the traumatic things. Um, last Monday night, you know, a, a friend of mine was talking about it was the toughest thing in the world she ever did, had to do. It was remember it was a blizzard outside and she made her daughter walk away in a blizzard, not knowing what could happen to her. And they, it's, that's the day she finally put her foot down. You know, she finally put it. She would help her and help her and help her. And the day she sent her out into a blizzard, not knowing if she would freeze to death or end up in prison. That same girl she was talking about now is five years clean today. And it's the hardest thing someone was going to have to do. You'd someone that you truly love to the core and send them off to the, to the, into the fire, so to speak, and hope and pray that they don't die in the process. You know, the disease of addiction is a horrible, horrible thing. My mother had to go through it. You know, my mother ended up going to Al-Anon to deal with it. 
Um, well, that's you, the support is really important. You know, having those outlets there. You know, and I think that places, you know, even on an island like Nantucket, it's it, they have to have that support system there. And uh, someone told me this at the um, the emergency room was experiencing a lot of people going to the emergency room to detox and they weren't prepared to, to deal with that. I, mean, I don't know if that, that was just, uh, I heard that, but uh, you know, there's people going through these things that need that support and it's just, uh, it doesn't seem like it's going away. You know, Vermont has a situation, it's just getting bigger and bigger. And uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, your story certainly offers um, some insight to the world uh, of addiction. And, and how powerful it is. And, you know, the struggle is constant. My wife, you know, she's an RN in an emergency room and, uh, you know, two or three times a day, you know, she's handing out Narcan. And uh, so now the cop, the, the police on Nantucket are carrying Narcan. Narcan. Do you believe it's a uh, good or bad? There's oh, it's definitely good. Narcan's the only thing that's bringing you back. And I tell you, Narcan is, you know, years and years ago until they, till they ruled it out as inhumane. Narcan is a very unpleasant experience. It, for, a, for a heroin addict, it couldn't be any more unpleasant. Um, the first time I went on the methadone program, they call it the Narcan Challenge. And to prove that you had a drug habit, now this is a drug today that they only give to people that are completely overdosed and about to die. So we'd walk in, it was the first day of going on methadone, and they give you a shot of Narcan. Um, you had to sit there and stare at the clock for 10 minutes. They put a bucket in front of you. What did it feel like? Could you feel it hit you? It felt like fire going through your body. It was like eating the opiates out of your system. It literally felt like fire burning through your veins. It was the worst. Like talk about your pimples going from nice and small and happy to this huge, scary looking skin starts crawling, hot, cold. And then you start to throw up and then they wait about 10 minutes and you'd be like after like, and it hits so fast. So after 90 seconds, you're like, all right, I'm, throwing up on your floor um crying and begging you haven't gotten the point and they'll make you sit there 10 minutes they ruled that out as finally being all right this isn't necessary a dirty urns good enough <laughs> you know no one fakes really being you know a heroin addict um but there is no other thing from stopping you. if you're going out you're going out well some people i i saw some i was reading something they were saying well the, uh, the narcan stuff was actually creating a situation where people felt like well i can take as much as I, i'll just get narcan and i'll be fine I think if I, to be honest, I haven't heard that. I think the first time anybody took Narcan and they realized it doesn't stop you from that one use. It takes the opiates out of your system. If you have a drug habit, you go into instant withdrawals. It is the last thing you want to do if oh, you're a heroin Yeah, it takes all the opiates out of your system. I mean, it's certainly saving lives. I mean, I, there's no doubt. I think it's You important. are sick as a dog. YouTube sometime um, people waking up to Narcan. I'm going to do it right now. I mean, like they'll be completely out, completely gone, look like they're about to die, and they wake up. You'll see them in the, in the emergency room start flipping out, jumping out of the bed. People are straining them. It is not a fun experience. It's not like, oh, I took too much. You take a little Narcan. Oof, that was close. That was a close call. It's not how it happens at all. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible, I mean, people will end up throwing up on themselves. No, oh, Jesus says in 2013, there were 570 for drug-related deaths in Massachusetts alone. Experts blame the trend on an influx of cheaper, pure heroin in the state. Massachusetts, I mean, every state's dealing, but this is 2013. I remember, you know, it's funny how inflation works. You know, you look back in time on how cheap things were. 
Like I was laughing the other day because I bought one of those. Remember those old school Tootsie Pops? Mm -hmm. The little, you know, the chocolate ones and they were like a nickel. I bought one the other day. I saw it there. So I just grabbed the one with 78 cents. I was like, oh my God, five cents to 78 cents. When I first started using heroin, the same size bag of heroin uh, was $20. That bag of heroin today, even if you buy it as a single, is about six bucks. I mean, who can't come up with six dollars? You know, yeah. you, you could be a kid that doesn't even have a job. You can come up with six dollars. Um, obviously, the habits get bigger, but like for people first trying it out, it's six bucks. I mean, what do you, what, you can't even buy anything for six dollars anymore. You can buy heroin, and and it's extremely, extremely strong. Um, you know, talking about uh, you know, the 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 use of because of epidemic levels. I think it's I think it's terrific. You know, but now before there were shots, like if you were ended up in an ambulance, you know, they have the little the nasal ones that go into your nose, mm -hmm. and uh, it it it'll absolutely you know save lives. It's going to save incredible amounts of lives. You know, it's the only thing my wife does at her job in the emergency rooms. You have no choice; they die or you give them Narcan. So yeah, it's it's such a complex issue, and I think that yeah, uh, I. I I don't know. I, I don't know if I under, fully understand what the answer is to treat it. I think the thing, the conversations like this, understanding addiction is certainly important to as many people as possible. Understanding that it is like yourself, like a, a disease that uh, you're born with, but it can develop. And it's overprescribed. You know, I, th I feel like they're, they're starting to pull back. But, uh, you know, who knows how invested the pharmaceutical companies are. I don't even want to get into all of that. I know they could care less. I mean, well, but uh, see, I don't know. Do you, do they worry about repercussions. Th they're not worried about. You know what I mean? Uh, that's my personal opinion because there's just so many pharmaceuticals that they can. Like I said, they they profit on methadone. You think they'd rather you go to uh, treatment? They'd rather you be on methadone. Like, why would they not want to? I mean, it's big, big bunny in methadone and suboxone. It's huge money. I guess I keep coming in my brain. What is the what's the best way to treat it? Well, how do you, is it just is the community, the, the meetings? We go the back support? to the beginning, how we talk about how the disease of addiction is in the same book as cancer, diabetes, or any other disease. It's the only disease, one, they tell you, it's the only disease that tells you you don't have a disease, that you have it under control. And two, it's the only disease that you literally need to send them off on their own and hope they get it right. You know what I mean? You could pressure them to go into treatment and hope it works. But most of the times, you know, unless it's the person's choice, it's not going to work. Yeah, I, I just, the thing that I wanted to take from this conversation too is just, you know, something that, we, that you would want people to understand. What is the, you know, we've talked a lot of, a lot of different things, but it's something that you think people need to understand about addiction in the addict, in the mind of an addict. And because I think that the information that you're talking about is important because the conversation is real. It's going on in Nantucket. It's going on everywhere, and that's why I, I had you on, because I, I do think it's a very important topic to discuss uh, and be frank about it. The, the mind of the act, to be honest, it's not the same as if you had asked me 23 years ago, because I think so many people have become so familiar with it because the amount of, that people use. But I do need to think, you know, you know the stigma of, of being an addict um, and the completely just not understanding why don't you just stop if it's almost killing you stopping just just stopping is not an option it's not possible it's like saying why don't you just stop having diabetes stop having cancer it's just stop having cancer like why don't you just that stuff cancer will kill you why don't you just stop having it it's literally the same thing you know people are gonna might hear that right now and laugh 
it's completely the truth. It's 100%. It's a real disease. You know, it's a, it's a disease that wants you dead. If, you, if you're uh, smart enough to put down drugs, that disease doesn't go anywhere. It'll kill you through, you know, other behaviors. It wants you to feel like shit about yourself. It wants you to act out. It wants to ruin your life in any way possible. Man, I just, that's so heavy to like have to go through like day-to-day life and try and, but, you know, I can, obviously the, the community sponsors and stuff are super important. Um, you know, we, you know, in as addicts, you know, especially like because, you, you know, when you go to meetings long enough, you build a network. And usually after time, the majority of people you hang out with are all in recovery. And so we even start making jokes about the way we act out about stuff, about our, you know, they're called character defects. We'll laugh because we all know. You have a very good sense of humor about it. I mean, you, you, you seem to, you're very open about it. You know, some people don't. I had trouble. I wanted to get someone on. Um, I had trouble finding people that would come on and openly talk about their addiction because it is a, it's a private thing for sure. But I do think it's important to share. You know, you seem to be very open about it. Well, I don't have to use my name, Doug, which is also nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. We're not going to. I appreciate that. You know, and I, I respect that. It, 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 it's not even, it, it's not, it has nothing to do even with me. It just has to do with people connected to me. You know what I mean? Of it's, course. It's really course. the main reason. Because, you know, the line of work I ended up going into and stuff, you know, it's embarrassing if you're an addict. It's embarrassing to be using. Um, that's when it's embarrassing to be an addict if you're still using. If you're not, you know, after time, you, you know, it's just not that embarrassing anymore. You know, it's, um, am I doing it today? No, if I was still doing it, that would be embarrassing. And maybe it, you know, with just a couple of days, it's different, but you know, when your life is, uh, changed a little bit, it's less embarrassing. Well, I celebrate it. I celebrate your, uh, your new chapter and support you. So congratulations. Doug, I thank you for your support. <laughs> and, uh, thanks for coming on. I think it's a, it's not an easy topic to talk about, and I really. I hope I got to as many issues, as many of the questions as is you you know you wanted to about the subject. Um, well, I feel like I just wanted. I think it was important to hear uh, someone's story and uh, you know your opinion. Someone that's been in in and out of uh, the struggle and continues the fight. And that's really what it was about. And people can, you know, take well, what they want from it. Especially also talking about, like, you know, you're talking about Nantucket. You know, you're talking about, uh, you know, people, some well-off people here. There's people, you know, wearing nice clothes and basically the same way I was brought up. And they won't believe, like, especially parents won't believe that the depths of where it will get you. They'll always think, well, not, you know, not my kid. But, I mean, All the, the stories, money in the world can't. Uh, yeah. You know, the stories of where it does, it does take you almost seems like a movie you can't write like it's not true and it's absolutely true in fact not only is it true but it'll happen time and time and time again you know some of the worst horror stories in the world you know and you know a lot of my friends believe i would almost rather die than 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 to not die and continue to live in the in in the world of active addiction because it's it's a living nightmare you know when you are in it yeah and uh i would rather not be around than than to live one in the world of acquisition and two continue to hurt everybody in my life you know and and the freedom from that is um you know is what's coming from the program um well i i just want to say thank you and i appreciate your honesty and i think that uh, your story and your struggle is is important for people to hear because uh it, it brings us closer to what's going on and the real so thanks and no problem Doug. all right dude Thanks, man. No problem. Wow. Uh, there it is, guys. That uh, it was heavy. <laughs> it was a heavy conversation. You know, I can't thank uh, the gentleman enough, uh, my friend, for sitting down and talking uh, so candidly 
about the uh, the struggle of addiction. And uh, I don't know, hopefully you guys found it interesting and uh, informative. And uh, it's not an easy topic, again, to talk about, but I can't thank him enough for sitting down and uh, getting real and talking about it. And, uh, you know, I support him and his road to recovery. It's uh, addiction is something that uh, it's in all of us. It's, it's it affects all of us, and it's everywhere. And you know what's going on today with the heroin and opiates is just uh, is is a serious uh, a serious problem. So uh, I can't thank him enough though for talking about it. And uh, you know I think you get a feel for someone that uh, how uh, it just all-encompassing addiction is and uh it's a lifelong struggle and uh, we need to just be aware of it support it um understand it and uh know that there's people if you are struggling that there's communities out there that that are there to support you and help you get through it um that being said uh you know thanks again for uh listening guys Um, i hope you enjoyed the conversation i know it's not an easy uh thing to talk about but uh, it's an important an important topic uh you know i think we all have um been affected by it in one way or another maybe indirectly or uh or not so directly you know i just had a friend who uh was going through some problems divorce and stuff and i wondered if uh you know his addiction was alcohol but uh i don't know you know it's it it is it affects us and uh, i don't know that's just something that needs to be addressed, and we all need to be aware of it. And the people that are struggling uh, out there, let uh, if you know someone that's struggling, let them know that you're there to support them and that there is help out there. So, uh, all right, guys, that's it uh, for episode 29. Uh, once again, thanks for the click, guys. Uh, next up is episode 30. I can't believe it, 30 episodes of Inside the Whale. As always, uh, thank you for the click, guys. Go out there and enjoy the spring weather, and uh, if you're struggling... Get help, be strong, it's out there, and uh, know that you have a community out there that will support you. All right? See you on the next one, guys.